So welcome everyone to this, our third talk of the fourth series. And I'm really delighted to present Valeria Gazizova, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the South Asian Institute in the Department of Cultural and Religious History of South Asia at Heidelberg University. And she's also affiliated to the GSRL in Paris. Valeria has a master's degree in Tibetan studies and a PhD in the history of religion from the University of Oslo from the Department of Culture Studies and Oriental Languages. And prior to her appointment at Heidelberg University, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Social Anthropology as part of the Mongolia and Inner Asian Studies Unit. So Valeria, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today and over to you. Thank you, can I begin? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much for inviting me to share some of my work at the Treasure Seminar. Um, my talk today is based on a um, series of uh, field research trips to Kalmykia between 2011 and 2019. And it is uh, integral to my larger research project, which is devoted to underground or secret religious activities and influential figures during the Soviet era of religious suppression in the Buddhist society of Kalmykia. I'm looking at different forms of secrecy in relation to ritual and healing practices that were generated and performed in this condition of exclusion and state suppression. And in this respect, treasure recoveries being predicated first and foremost on concealment and memory constitute an important part, an important variety of what I see as practices of secrecy. The Kalmyks um, are a group of Mongolian descent who migrated to their present day location from uh, in the, in the 17th century from approximately Xinjiang and Western Mongolia and established a form of Kanat that became subjected to the Tsarist Russia. Tibetan Buddhism, uh, primarily in his Gelugpa variant, was the dominant religion at least from the time of the Kanat. Uh, the Stalinist anti-religious uh, reprisals erased the Kalmyk uh, Buddhist establishment from the public scene in the 30s. All Kalmyk monasteries, numbering approximately 100 by the late 20s, had been destroyed, uh, had at least ceased to work by the Second World War. During the Second World War, the entire Kalmyk population was accused of treason against the Soviet Union and exiled en masse to Siberia and Central Asia. Even though Kalmyks were pardoned uh, 13 years later and uh, Kalmykia was restored within the Soviet state, but Buddhism, as well as uh, popular forms of um, popular forms of popular worship and uh, folk healing continued to be prohibited and the Buddhist establishment never regained the official status at least uh, until at least the, uh, the late uh, 80s. Uh, but nevertheless, even though it was suppressed and prohibited, uh, religion was not eradicated altogether, but acquired new specific forms in this situation. So it was functioning basically in the form of underground centers and temples focused around returnee ex-monks. That is those uh, Kalmyk monks who received their Buddhist training in Kalmykia or abroad had been through Gulag prison camps, deportation, and then they came back to Kalmykia and continued conducting 
uh, rituals in secret and uh, transmitting knowledge to their students and even going on secret pilgrimage trips. Even though some of them continued to be under surveillance of the local KGB. So basically my larger, in my larger project, which I hope will result in a monograph, I'm looking at, on the one hand, I'm looking at construction of memories about so-called underground Buddhists and developing popular hagiography centered on its key personalities. And at the same time, I'm looking at uh, religious transformations that this condition of state-imposed mode of secrecy has triggered. And when it comes to treasure practices, treasure recoveries in the present day comic context, uh, on the one hand, it is part of the broader pattern, broader, broader scope of religious transformations because it is a rather new phenomenon. Uh, I mean, treasure recovery, especially if, the, if we think about the Tibetan tradition of Therma revelation, which is largely predicated on the role and figure of the treasure revealer who is a recognized reincarnation of treasure revealers or concealers from previous lifetimes. But uh, in Kalmykia, the Institute of Recognized Reincarnations was practically non-existent uh, since the 18th century. So this, uh, the validity, I mean, this important element on which the validity rest was gone. At the same time, even though it is quite new, I mean, the uh, treasure practices at large, they are used, deployed as a way of maintaining continuity in the local of the local tradition as a means of survival, whether in the Soviet era or today, the treasure practices were deployed first and foremost as a means of survival of the local tradition. And at present, they are looked at uh, as instruments of national and ethnocultural renewal. So uh, now I shall... Um, introduce two absolutely different varieties of what can be subsumed under this treasure mode uh, uh, rubric, which somewhat also, these this two cases are very different, but and they somewhat roughly correspond to the off-site Tibetan dichotomy of earth treasures and uh, mind treasures. And one is uh, rooted directly embedded in the Soviet history of suppression, while the other case is, is the result of transnational connections of present day Kalmyk Buddhist groups. So when saying that Buddhism and Soviet Kalmykia moved underground, it can be understood quite literally. Not only that upon their return, this secret underground ex-monks lived in dugout houses, but importantly, as was largely the case during periods of religious persecution in other societies, let's say in Tibetan societies or in, among other Mongol groups, uh, people, were bur they buried Buddhist texts, images and ritual paraphernalia in the ground. This was happening particularly uh, beginning from the late 20s throughout the 30s and 40s. And one important place for such, um, one important place for such underground concealment, uh, particularly among the monks, were ancient burial mounds abounding on the northern Caspian steppe. Uh, these mounds, they date to different historical eras that from the early Bronze Age to the decline of the Golden Horde. And one and the same burial mound, which is a tumuli basically, it contains graves of prehistoric people, and one and the same mounds can contain 
burials belonging to absolutely very different distant historical um, times, historical eras. And in this way, a mound is a point of intersection of diverse temporalities, which resonates with the function of the treasures. So on the one hand, I'm looking at, I explore this relationship between the Kalmyk historical veneration of um, burial mounds and the recent uh, treasure recoveries. And this in turn reveals very important connection between the cult of mountains among the Mongols, at least the veneration of local deities and treasure revelations. So in the, in the topography of the Northern Caspian lowlands, the burial mounds functioned as uh, they basically they substituted for mountains because the Kalmyks they brought the cult of mountains with them but there were no mountains so they were these mounds they became um, of this important reference points in the Buddhist uh, ritual landscape of the Kalmyks they were venerated as sacred heights and abodes of different categories of uh, cosmological beings from the territorial deities to enlightened members of the pantheon. And some specific mounds were in fact associated with particular de Buddhist deities from the pantheon. Um, so, um, so while being incorporated into this basically Buddhist and becoming part of the Buddhist landscape, uh, the mounds also functioned as important uh, reference points and sacred, um, sacred areas, territories, of patrilineal, uh, patrilineal uh, territories at which annual collective rituals were conducted. During the Soviet era, uh, when saying that uh, Buddhism went underground, so basically the mounds, they were connected, they became the, uh, the sites of diverse types of secret ritual practices. First of all, um, collective uh, offering rituals were covertly conducted at the site or in the vicinity of the mounds. <clears throat> Some mounds were directly connected with certain underground ex-monks, secretly practicing and performing rituals for individual supplicants during the Soviet era. And uh, of course, they were, um, so that was the place where all these treasures uh, Buddhist images, text, and uh, ritual implements were concealed during the time of uh, the, the destruction of monasteries. And the reason for choosing the mounds, of course, are numerous. One possible practical way is that being the most prominent in the landscape, the mounds function as a sort of mnemonic devices for people to remember, because it was not only the monastics who would hide their images, but also just uh, common people, common devotees and believers. And uh, my respondents would tell me stories about, you know, their family, uh, their family, family accounts, how they buried their family images, statues of, of Buddhist statues, and then were able to recover them upon their return from the deportation. Another important reason is that mounds being sacred, being a sacred territory, territory and um, negative, sort of like uh, surrounded with numerous uh, taboos and ritual prohibitions. So that was a guarded uh, space, a space of exclusion. So they provided a very safe place to conceal and to hide Buddhist images from being destructed and defiled and uh, desecrated, which was largely the case, of course, during the uh, destruction of monasteries. To what extent are the um, images buried 
in or in the vicinity of the mounds was supposed to be recovered in the future, it still remains to be investigated because on the one hand, people do want to recover and there are recoveries of uh, images documented and uh, whether individual families or monks, they do um, encounter this, uh, well, whether spontaneously or deliberately, looking for <clears throat> statues but at the same time uh, it could be that uh, statues were just buried for protection and even at, even now the uh, excavation the unearthing of these images requires specific ritual um, setting and a series of rituals must be conducted to restore the proper balance between the territorial entities abiding perceived as abiding around or in the mound and uh, humans taking the treasures from them. Perhaps, uh, and of course, uh, there is um, this popular hagiography and mythologies developing around the mounds, around the treasure recoveries and around the uh, pre-revolutionary or Soviet, secret Soviet monastics who would, uh, who were supposed to be hiding the statues. Uh, numerous stories, miraculous legends about treasures of pre-revolutionary monasteries hidden around certain mounds. For example, this is one of them. Some of these mounds are now being restored, reconstructed as sites of um, sites of worship by monasteries and by lay communities. And this is one of the examples, perhaps one of the largest mounds, because some of these mounds, they're quite low. Not all of them are so prominent. And there is also legends surrounding this mound. No treasures have been recovered from uh, here so far, but there are numerous legends surrounding this particular site. But perhaps one of the largest, uh, one of the largest recent uh, discovered treasure discoveries, uh, which received attention in the media, was in 2016, when an entire collection of Buddhist images and ritual implements that you can see, numbering approximately 20, 30 items, was discovered in a very low mound, ostensibly of the Scythian era, near the village Shata in the center of Kalmykia. Um, here you can see the ritual, the monk is chanting prayers and making offerings to the mound, to the entities perceived as abiding in the mound, where after the treasures have, um, after the treasures were removed. And what's another interesting point regarding this specific practices and these discoveries is that the focus is not so much to the actual discoverer, who found the items, but importantly, it is the, the role of the concealer and the reconstruction of the past and of the local history that is the focus of attention here. People are trying to reconstruct, for example, regarding this collection, uh, people are trying to reconstruct the history of, the, of this specific collection where where it comes from and different um, interpretations, different opinions are expressed. For example, monks from the central monastery, they suggest that it must have been hidden by, um, by monks from the nearby monastery. The local people from the nearby villages that I talked to connect this specific uh, collection and the items with the uh, certain important secret Buddhists that were practicing during the time of religious suppression in the Soviet, in Soviet Kalmykia. So 
this process of recovering treasures from the mound is also the process of reconstructing the history of the recovered objects. And by reconstructing the history of the objects, people reconstruct the history of their, their local history, their local Buddhist history, and in this way recreate their unique uh, subjectivities and belonging. So the other case, um, or rather a story prolonged with the story that began in 2010, is another interesting dimension of present day treasure recoveries. At least it is seen by some adherents as treasures, and it is directly connected with transnational influences, uh, which at the same time becomes the site of uh, severe strife and tension on the, on the Kalmyk religious scene. Because on the one hand, post-Soviet Kalmyk identity building is rooted, of course, in Buddhism, and especially in the, in the historical connection between the Kalmyks and Tibet. And for this reason, uh, Tibetan, uh, Lam Tibetan Buddhist lamas, especially emigre lamas in exile, and reconstructed Tibetan Buddhist establishment rebuilt, for example, across India and in Nepal, they play a very important prominent role in this process. However, on the other hand, this constant, this tendency of looking for foreign inspiration elsewhere, beyond Kalmykia, beyond even Mongolia, is also, it can be also criticized by those who aspire to a more local form of uh, religious practice and of, of Buddhism. So uh, my second example concerns the introduction of the worship of two protective deities in several Kalmyk Buddhist centers, which um, the adherents see as mind treasures. And that which were revealed by a very a well-known uh, Tibetan emigre lama, Namkadri Merin Poche. He's the head of the Ripa lineage and the founder of the International Ripa Center with outlets monasteries um, in different countries. So the important thing that he's recognized as uh, as a treasure reveal as a therton, and his lineage of rebirth includes a number of very important Buddhist personalities. Uh, so during his first visit to Kalmykia in the summer of 2010, Namkadri Me is reported to have had a number of visions and dreams of a local protective deity and later composed or rather revealed as reported by my interlocutors, an offering prayer text for his worship. According to the text and the descriptions received from the Therton, the deity is an ancient guardian and the war god of the Oirats who had been helping the Kalmyks since the time of their migration to the lower Volga, came together with them and continued helping them in their new Lakale. However, during the degenerate dark time of the Soviet era, this crucial connection was allegedly lost and it is now due to the agency of a powerful Lama that this connection is being restored. The name, uh, yeah, so this is a concise version of the text and the name of the new deity is Jungardrala. Dalha as they call him in Kalmykia, Jungard Dalha. 
And as the name indicates, uh, the, the new deity belongs to the class of wrathful, uh, not wrathful, but warrior deities, equestrian warrior heroes whose tasks include protecting the country and its people, increasing wealth. And uh, this type of uh, this category of uh, warrior deities was uh, and is well known throughout the among the Mongol groups and of course in Tibet, and of course in Kalmyk, the Kalmyks were not exception to this rule. Nevertheless, the name Jungar is quite new, at least to me, as the name suggests. It is the immediate uh, the immediate reference to the to what is regarded as the ancestral home of the Kalmyks. So Jungaria, that is the geographical area from where they came to their still regarded as new locale. And uh, so in this sense, the, the recovered protective entity reinforces the Kalmyk links within Eurasia and their belonging to the larger Mongol and Tibetan Buddhist world at large. At the same time, another important point is that at least the followers of uh, Namkadrimi correlate this rediscovered equestrian deity with the epic hero Jang Khan. The prominent Mongolian and Oirat Khan epic hero, the universal conqueror and the ruler of the imaginary kingdom of Bumba. As has been traditionally the case um, in other inner Asian society, the Kalmyk epic was performed, used to be performed in a special ritual setting by inspired gods who were also believed to possess visionary powers. In the Soviet Union, however, Jungar was uh, suppressed as a visionary and ritual practice, but promoted as a literary text. And at present, there is a tendency of re-sacralization of the epic. Uh, and uh, perhaps, this invention or rediscovery of Janga, Janga Khan as a deity embodied, embodied as a warrior deity is part of this general re-sacralization. Nevertheless, if you look at the tank, this tanka was uh, produced, was painted um, on the uh, in accordance according to the visions received uh, from um, to the text and visions of Namkadri Meh, and here the lineage, the genealogy of the uh, of the rediscovered deity is reflected. So as you can see, uh, Jungadrala is a servant and attendant in the retinue of Gesar, and this was also in the text that I showed you previously. Uh, so in this sense. Uh, so, in this sense, Gesar, which is, of course, a well-known, another hero of another well-known epic, especially important in Eastern Tibet and among other Mongol groups, but not so much among the Kalmyks. So, it turns out that this entire cosmology, this lineage, somehow puts the Kalmyks, their epic hero, ranking them lower to the, uh, to, uh, to the Tibetan epic hero. And also, it appears that the Kalmyk warrior deity serves not so much as a defender of Kalmyk national interests, but as Padmasambhava's foot soldier in fighting enemies of Buddhism. And this is this is quite um, this this became quite a pro provocative <clears throat> innovation and led to intense uh, debates, if not outright. Uh, outright conflicts between the Buddhist groups.
but uh, uh, the story is to continue because during his next trip in the summer of 2011, Namkadri is reported to have had no, not yet, is reported to have had uh, a, um, a new series of visions. And this time the visions were about another local deity of the Kalmyks. And according to the text and the descriptions received from the Terton, um, the deity was identified as the white old man, which of course the white old man is a very well-known figure throughout uh, Tibetan Buddhist and the Mongol world. And in um, Kalmykia, it is um, this figure has been traditionally venerated as the lord of the land and water and the guardian of herds and nature. Basically, his principal task is to regulate the relationship between humans and natural world, which includes not only protecting herds and healing, but also punishing uh, for what is considered improper behavior. And in this sense, uh, the white old man is perceived as ambivalent, highly ambivalent, but also highly powerful. And in present-day Kalmykia, the white old man is perhaps the central figure of popular worship. And there is a growing number of new religious groups whose uh, um, religious and ritual and healing practice is focused on the <clears throat> veneration of the white old man. And some of these, uh, some of these groups, at least their practices, their practices of textual revelation somewhat uh, resonates with the, the therma, textual therma discoveries. For example, some of these communities, they claim to be receiving texts of religious importance, uh, usually ritual and healing texts from deities, usually from the Buddhist deities, from the Buddhist pantheon, and, and of course from the white old man. So they claim to be receiving special texts and visions and dreams, and these texts are encoded in, um, in comprehensible language. And then they claim to be receiving translations or a code to decipher the text. So this is something that's happening in Kalmykia, this grassroots movements focused on the white old man. And of course here the white old man, I mean, he receives new functions and his entire role is, uh, pro receives profound um, <clears throat> reinterpretation. But coming back to the to our Rinpoche, he his uh, his discovery proposes another way to another type of distortion of the indigenous cosmology and another way of reinterpreting the function and the the figure of the the white old man, which is reflected again in the new <clears throat> tanka that was again painted produced. Um, in accordance with the instructions, vision, and text received from Namkadrine. So um, here we can see that the white old man is somehow, it appears that the white old man is somehow admitted, is correlated with the Padma family. So you can see that in the upper register, in the middle, you can see there's a mitaba flanked by Guru Rinpoche and then Avalokiteshvara. And this, we have this big, big depiction of Hayagriva in the center. And what is unusual is that, according to my informants, the white old man is directly connected with Hayagriva. So the white old man is has been retained, resubjugated by Hayagriva, and it is Hayagriva who is controlling the white old man. And um, so, both actually both tankas, both. Um, both paintings 
present a sort of collective collaboration, collective work, collective work between the Terton, the treasury dealer, the painter, and uh, the Buddhist, Kalmyk Buddhist monastics, because it, it includes several important elements which are quite typical of the Kalmyk local tradition. I don't know if you can see it well, but in the corner, in the lower register, there is a depiction of Saiga antelope. If you can see it, and in, for the Kalmyks, they believe that uh, Saiga antelope is the mount, the mount animal of uh, the white old man. And this is the first time um, I have never seen uh, tankas or depictions, all the depictions of the white old man with Saiga. But this appears to be something again new, uh, new tendency of incorporation of this local mythology, and but representing it in the in the developing art. Uh, so. What's in, so the tankas are a collective collaboration, and it also looks like it seems, which I have not really looked at, but it also seems that the text written by Nam um, about the new text written about the white old man, is also seems to be a sort of collective production of intertextual nature, because according to my according to the lamas that I talked to in Kalmyke, they told me they emphasized that. Um, Namkadrimia was experiencing difficulties in locating the white old man. And for this reason, he asked the uh, lamas, uh, la some lamas in Kalmykia, if they had any other texts devoted to this deity. And of course, the texts uh, devoted to the white old man are not, uh, I mean, there, there are numerous texts devoted to this deity in Kalmykia, in Tibetan, in Kalmyk. And so they gave him, uh, lamas gave, hi uh, gave him several older copies and this is the mm, allegedly the pre-revolutionary older copy of the um, incense offering to the white old man and there was another text that they gave him uh, gave to the terton the text uh, which was allegedly used before the soviet era to cause uh, uh, to cause rain and to influence the weather so i have not done this yet but it would be also interesting to see to what extent to what extent how much has been how much has been borrowed from this older from the older allegedly older text devoted to this deity uh, so um so as uh, so this new uh, um, discoveries um of course they became very contested points and on the one on the one hand, the followers of Nankadrime, they see them as treasures, both the deities, the uh, the images, the texts, and they emphasize numerous accounts. So they relate numerous stories of miraculous happenings, changes in the weather, which they maybe even dreams and their own experiences, visionary experiences that they had, which they interpret as signs that prove the validity of the new treasures. And one of such important signs, at least what they told to me, is that the name of the new temple, as you can see here, this is one of the new outlets of the Ripa International Center. Um, it was built a few years ago in Kalmykia. And the name of this temple or monastery, and the monastery will be devoted first and foremost to the uh, to the worship, to the rituals 
devoted to the newly discovered deities, to Jungar and to the white old man and to Gesar. So they, this coincidence, so they emphasize that the name of this specific monastery coincides with the name of pre-revolutionary Kalmyk Buddhist monastery that was located around this area and I checked it and it's indeed true there was there was the monastery with the same name which was quite old and it was brought in the 17th century when it was still in its uh, mobile nomadic form and then it um, acquired its stationary incarnation in the village of Patapovska so so the disciples uh, of Namkadrime, um, they tried to somehow validate and legitimize the new developments that they are now trying to promote. But at the same time, on the other hand, and this opinion is perhaps even more articulated and more proliferated in Kalmykia. So the opinion is that these new, uh, these new, these innovations, these renovations of cosmology, they are not gaining ground because it contradicts certain important principles. Uh, first of all, that Gessa, Gessa has never been venerated in Kalmykia. And then the Janga Khan cannot be a, a foot soldier of Gessar because he's the conqueror of the universe. And so he cannot be uh, an attendant or servant in the retinue of Gessar. So some even expressed the opinion that it can be not just of no avail, but it can be quite dangerous to promote this new cult because it can anger and outrage the local deities, the true protectors of Kalmykia, who do not want to be resubjugated uh, in this Padmasambhava governed cosmology. And perhaps uh, several of my interlocutors cited, a, uh, cited an example that proves this. Um, inconsistency. So during one of his subsequent uh, trips to Kalmykia, I think it was 2000, I'm not sure, not exactly sure where it was, but Namkadrimerian Pache during when he was given big public ritual, public initiation into the new practice of the white old man, he suffered a stroke and spent some time in the hospital. And of course, this accident, this unfortunate event was interpreted by a number of other Buddhist communities who do not support the new practice. It was interpreted as the wrath of the local deities who do not agree with this new cosmology that is being imported. So, um, so I guess um, just, I, I shall leave it here. Just it, my, my point was to show two different cases of what are considered as treasure and to what extent it is, um, no matter how new it may seem and how unusual it can uh, be in the, in, in the general historical context of Kalmykia, it is nevertheless deployed as a way of reinventing continuity and as an instrument of recovery and revival or renewal of what is believed by the adherents as the true indigenous authentic forms of their tradition. Well, thank you. I guess I have to stop here.